Thank you, Jan and company. Thank you for your singing this morning. We are uh, we're going to roll into the second part of our teaching series called Engendered Species. Uh, you know what's on my heart. I know what's on your heart. We're going to continue in worship in this way, in coming back to the truths that we know about the Word of God. I would encourage you, if you are trying to process the grief of sudden loss and what that means, I would encourage you to, to listen online. We'll send that link out later to some of the things that were shared yesterday at the service. I hope they will be helpful for you as you process uh, all of this, okay? We find ourselves in part two of a seven-part series uh, we're calling Engendered Species, and the rationale for this, the reason we're here is because I believe that we're living in a world in which... Um, Essentially, many would prefer, and perhaps you might make the argument that our mainstream culture would prefer if we were to remove or strip away gender um, uniqueness from the functionality in which and how we operate. And the engendered species title is meant to remind us that God has actually, quote-unquote, engendered or given to us gender at creation. We're going to talk about that this morning. But that we live in a world in which some would prefer that we become almost endangered species as male and female. So last week, if you were with us, we laid the foundation for this very important issue by asking this question, is there a moral authority on this? And this was last week, and this was all that that was. In other words, on this issue, you and I can talk back and forth about gender equality and all that we want to, but at the end of the day, we're going to have to ask, is there a place that I can go that is going to be authoritative? Is there such a thing as a right or a wrong? when I start talking about um, sexual preferences and orientation, when I start talking about um, you know, transgender issues, and I start talking about gender equality, is there a moral authority on this issue? Is there a place to go? Or is it just a matter of who has the best argument? All right? And so I tried to make the case last week that in the beginning, God. And in the beginning, God, if that is true, that in the beginning, if he created, and if God created, therefore, for human flourishing, that he has the right to set creation how he would like to set it. Okay? Now, what I'd like to do this morning is I'd like to talk about the implications of the uniqueness of humanity. So if you have a Bible, I'd like you to turn to the book of Genesis chapter 1. This is going to be easy to find. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's one in the pew right around you. And that, by the way, is our gift to you if you don't own a Bible. Genesis chapter 1, first, uh, first chapter, the first book of the Bible. And our passage is very straightforward, very simple this morning, chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Because this morning I want to talk about the implications of the um, image of God in man. So check out verses 26 and 27 of Genesis chapter 1. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Those are our two verses this morning. So much here, we're going to just push right into it very quickly here this morning. Number one thing I want you to see is this reality, that humanity has value because of God's image. If I were to ask you, and we've covered this before if you've been with us, what is the essence of humanity? What is the essential value of humanity? The answer is God's image. It's because of God's image that we have value as humans. Some might argue, well, the essence of humanity is our sinfulness. We're all sinful. 
And some might argue it's our goodness. We're all good. You know, I can see either argument. But the reality is it's deeper than that. Yes, we may sin. And yes, some activities may look good or appear good or whatever you want to call that. But the reality underneath that, the essence of humanity is the image of God. Now let's talk about that in relation to what's going on right now. This week, we had two births. Okay? I'll just talk about this for a minute. We had Hazel Joy Holt, who was born. We're grateful for a healthy little girl. Okay? Little Hazel. She's a fun-looking little, uh, little girl. I mean, uh, you know, looks like a baby, all right? And then, and then we have Brantley Dale Byler, who was born. Okay? We've, we've talked about that. All right, now let's look at that. We've got a little girl. We've got a little boy. Both have, as far as we know, different future stories, as far as what we know right now. The medical community will tell us one thing about Brantley and another thing about Hazel. But let me tell you this. The value of these young lives is not in what they will be able to do for us, but in the image of God stamped on each one of them. So that they have equal value in God's sight and therefore in the sight of all those who believe in this God. That because of the value, of the image of God in man, every human has intrinsic value because of the image. Every human being, even those who cannot contribute in the same way perhaps you might be able to, that does not determine their value. One pastor said it this way, that every human being, even those with the greatest special needs, has more value than secretariat who contributed so much to our world in a horse kind of way, but even those with the highest special needs, because they're human or another category, and it's in that category that they have great value because of God's image. Okay. Now, here's why that's important. Because we were stamped with God's image, the church has got to respond to people, regardless of their sexual orientation or their identity, of how they identify themselves as male, female, or other, regardless of where they identify, or even, now this is a trickier one, even what they practice, there is value in humanity because of the image of God in man. And we talked about this last week. The church has got this wrong. Within the church and out of the church, our reputation on this issue is not good. We, we've talked about that. But here's our foundation. The essence of the value of humanity is that God's image is stamped on us. And now here's what else this means. When God's image is stamped on us, it also means this, that God's image includes gender distinction. Did you see verse 27 there? Look at it again. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And so, if God creates and God is after human flourishing, in other words, he doesn't create humanity so that he can destroy us. He doesn't create humanity so that he can make your life terrible. He's a creator whose interest is in your flourishing as a good creator. He decides, you're in my image Male and female, I will create you for your benefit, for your goodness, for your good future. Now, gender equality 
will argue that we will find our greatest value in stripping away the uniqueness and understand our value as humans. And let me talk about it this way. Check this out up here. The gender equality is found in the equal value between men and women in God's eyes, not in stripping away the distinctions. That does not make us equal. It makes us less. It makes us less than what we were designed for. If we deny masculinity and femininity, if we deny men and women, if we deny or try to strip away that which is designed or created in our hardwiring, we are making ourselves less than what a good creator God stamped us in his image to be. or made in God's image. Now, let me take a few minutes and talk about where we are in the world today. This is our foundation, biblically, of how I come to this issue. I want you to understand what's happening in our world as we find it right now. Sigmund Freud, back in 1924, asserted this, and since this assertion, we in our modern world have been pushing back against this, both inside and outside the church. In 1924, he asserted that biology is the key determinant of gender identity. In other words... When a child is born, just look at them physically, look at their biological makeup, and you can determine if they're boy or girl. Those who would like to push on this have really begun arguing against that for many, many years, decades now. I'd like to tell you about Gina Rochero. You may or may not have known about this person. Gina Rochero now identifies as a female, so I'm going to honor that and call her her, but she was born male in the Philippines, and she... Uh, is now a model. I, I don't know if I should call her she or he. Anyway, she, she's now a model. I'm going to just go with that, all right? And she filmed a TED Talk in March 2014 called Why I Must Come Out. It has been viewed uh, 2.8 million times as of the end of last year uh, on the issue of gender. And here's what she said about gender. She said, gender has always been considered a fact, immutable, but we now know it's actually more fluid, complex, and mysterious. No source given, just declared. This is true. This is now true. Okay, you got it, Gina. You know, whatever you say. I mean, she's able to say this unquestioned because the world in which we live wants to hear this message. And so it goes as an affirmation of what we might want to hear. NPR posted an article on their website by Jimmy Page III and Greg David, and it's called, For These Millennials, Gender Norms Have Gone Out of Style. And I talked last week, this issue has more, if you're millennial or younger, this is going to hit you even more. And here's how they begin their article, just to give you a feel of what this is like. Cameron Finnecane, a burly 26-year-old technology consultant in Ithaca, New York, started painting his nails a few months ago. He has just started dating Emily Kuhn, a 24-year-old writer who has sworn off nail polish. Finnecane and Kuhn, as well as many other millennials, say that they find traditional notions of gender too confining, even ill-fitting. They are challenging the idea that men must dress a certain way and women another. Then they are rewriting the rules and refashioning clothes so that they can dress and accessorize in whatever way feels right to them. More than two-thirds of people ages 14 to 34 agree that gender does not have to define a person in the way that it used to. And according to a 2013 study conducted by the Intelligence Group, 6 in 10 say that men and women do not need to conform to traditional gender roles or behaviors anymore. Okay, 6 in 10 no longer have to conform, is that what we're saying. Now this is not about how many people are wearing nail polish and how many are not. The facts tell us this, that 
the majority, the vast majority, even of millennials in the United States, identify as heterosexual. There was just a survey released on Thursday, this past Thursday, January 7th, by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, a national study on sexual behavior, attraction, and orientation among adults, ages 18 to 44. And here was their part of their results right up here. Among those aged 18 to 44, 92.3% of women and 95.1% of men said they were heterosexual or straight. That's in the category of 18 to 44. And so we are talking about a vast, 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 vast majority, even of millennials and younger, who would identify themselves. Recent research as heterosexual or straight. The issue isn't that all of a sudden a whole lot more people are coming out this way. It's that it is an attempt to shape the national conscience on this issue in a way that changes how we see our very function between men and women. Elizabeth Weingarten, in a Time article published in January of last year, wrote an article on how to shake up gender norms. And this is what she said, and this summarizes what's at issue so well. She quoted four different, um, quote-unquote, experts, and it was an article bringing different people from different perspectives together. So she's going to list four names in this quote I'm about to share with you. These names are people who are, quote-unquote, experts in different fields, all on the issue of gender norms and how to shake that up. So here's what she said uh, about her question to them. When asked whether the future of gender was evolution and extinction, Barker, Nyan O. Oh, Wallace and Bornstein all said that they hoped for extinction. Wouldn't that be great? Engendered species, this is what we're talking about. The hope is, by those leading this movement, that we can get away from even talking about male and female anymore. And if we do that, then we will be enlightened. Then we will really find the value in one another. The Bible tells me something different. If we strip that away, we're now being less than what we're made to be. This is hitting in our elementary schools in Washington, D.C., at a school called Janney Elementary School. This story is told by Al Mohler in his book, We Cannot Be Silent. Parents, how would you respond if you were a parent, or even a student in this case? Parents at Janney Elementary School in Washington, D.C., um, realized what the Welcoming Schools Project planned for their children. Welcoming Schools is a movement trying to help uh, those in schools transition into more gender-neutral language uh, and, and other things. When a teacher in the school declared himself transgender and announced that he would now be addressed as Miss Reuter and not Mr. Reuter, how would you handle that? So an email was sent to parents by the principal of the school, announced how the transition of Mr. Reuter to Miss Reuter would be explained to the children. And parents were instructed to inform their children that gender, here's what they were told to say, the gender is a socially constructed reality, and the transition of Mr. Reuter to Miss Reuter should be welcomed as an opportunity for the school and its students to show their commitment to freedom and respect. This is what some will say is the 11th commandment. The 11th commandment for those um, who are particularly younger in this world is this, thou shalt not be intolerant. Thou shalt not be intolerant. If thou art perceived to be intolerant, thou hast broken the 11th commandment. This is where this letter finds its home. This is an opportunity, because gender, after all, is socially constructed, this is an opportunity for you to teach your kids how not to be intolerant. Commitment to freedom and respect. We live in a world where it's easy 
for Mr. Reuter to become Miss Reuter. It was easy for Gina Rochero to go from male to female because of gender reassignment surgery. Now, I want to show you this, and with this I'm almost done on where we are in the world. This is so, so helpful to me. Dr. Paul McHugh uh, from Johns Hopkins University. As far as I know, this is important for you to know, he is not a believer, as far as I know. Okay, this is important because of what he's going to say. He's a distinguished service professor of psychiatry at Johns Hopkins, and his research shows, shows that gender identity confusion is actually a psychiatric issue and isn't something people should just be left to decide on their own. Here's what he goes on to say. He says, I have witnessed a great deal of damage from sex reassignment. The children transformed from their male constitution into female roles, suffered prolonged distress and misery <clears throat> as they sensed their natural attitudes. You need to know, Johns Hopkins was on the cutting edge of um, sexual reassignment surgery in the 70s. Some might even argue in the 60s. If you were biologically a man but felt like being a woman, you could go to Johns Hopkins and they'd take care of that for you. If you were a woman and felt like being a man, you could go to Johns Hopkins and they could take care of that for you. Now, what he did... What uh, McHugh did is he went all the way back and he said, you know, I want to do a survey. I want to find out about these patients who were here and had this reassignment surgery done. And I want to find out, did it work? All right? I mean, did it fix what was broken? You came to me unfulfilled, and I want to know if you are now fulfilled. I mean, this is a good idea. If you're going to do this kind of a thing, this makes sense. And so he did that. He went back and he surveyed and he did research on those who've gone through the surgery at Hopkins. Now, the results were devastating. He's quoted in USA Today, and what he said he was blasted for, absolutely blasted for in the USA Today. He reported that nearly all the males who had surgery now identified themselves as lesbians because they found women attractive. Additionally, he said that the research at Hopkins shows that 80% of children who struggle with gender identity confusion grow out of it. Parents who overreact to their child's confusion end up causing exponentially more harm than if they, move, if they move them in this direction. So Hopkins no longer does these surgeries. And then he said this, and this is the most profound thing that I've read in his writing. He says this. We have wasted scientific and technical resources and damaged our professional credibility by collaborating with madness rather than trying to study, cure, and ultimately prevent it. A non-believer from Johns Hopkins saying, guys, this is foolishness. What are we doing? Listen, we live in a world where I believe this, that God is after human flourishing. That if in the beginning God, that if in the beginning God created, and if in the beginning God created male and female, and this God is after human flourishing, then there's something about being male and there's something about being female that is intrinsically worth celebrating. The gender equality is not to do with the aim of stripping away the distinctions between male and female, but gender equality comes back to understanding why am I male in the first place? Why would a God, a creator God, make me female? Not how can I fight against that. My belief 
is that in understanding the uniqueness of being male and female, we actually get to a greater understanding of why in the world we are actually here, which leads to this next question. If God created male and female, what does it mean to be a man? And what does it mean to be a woman? I have no idea. I'm just kidding. About the woman part, that's true, okay? This is where we will go next. Next week, we're going to talk about what does it mean to be a man. We're going to spend two weeks. Number one, what does it mean to be a man? And then, if I'm a man, how do I function in that role? What does it mean to be a man? Come on, now, what does it mean? Why do we have the category of boy? And adolescent, man. Is a man just a boy who can shave now? You know, what does that mean? What does that transition look like? What does it mean to be a man? And if I am made by the creator of the universe who is after human flourishing, if I'm made male, man, I better understand it. I better know what a win looks like. Like I better live out my maleness in its fullness so that I can understand life to the full that God has made me for. And if, if I'm a woman, man, I better understand that. What is in the world does that mean to be A female to be a woman, made in the image of God uniquely. And so we're going to spend two weeks on that, following our discussion of men. This is where we're going. The foundation of it is this. Is there a moral authority? Is there a right or a wrong? I believe I go back to the God of the Bible. In the beginning, God created. And God created male and female. What does it mean to be man? What does it mean to be woman? Join me next week, and we're going to figure that out. Will you pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for creating, for moving in us. To bring life to us. And in the gift of life, Father, may we not push back on how you have made us and how you've created both male and female and the beauty of both. May we remember the value of humanity is the image that you have stamped in us. The likeness in some sense to you as our creator. That as a creator, you're after our best and our flourishing in our growth. You even sent Jesus, your son, that we might have life and have it to the full. So Father, may we not be confused. And may we also love well every human being that we share this planet with. Because they all are made in your image. So may we care, respect, honor, dialogue well with even those who fundamentally disagree with what we say. We love you. Give us the courage to follow. In Jesus' name we pray.